Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and for those who are not part of the LSE community, welcome to the London School of Economics. And, of course, a particularly warm welcome to the President of Indonesia, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono. And he is here in London, of course, primarily to speak at the London School of Economics. Um, But uh, I believe he's also attending another meeting um, a little bit later uh, in the week. But we are um, honoured, sir, that you should have chosen to come to speak here while you are in London. Uh, We are very interested uh, to hear your perspective on the world, which is, of course, in a rather difficult condition. Uh, The president is the sixth president of Indonesia, but in fact the first who was directly elected by uh, popular vote. Um, And I believe from my extensive researches that one of the reasons for his election is that he is very musical and often sang a song, Pelangi di Matamu, during his presidential campaign. And I'm sure that if a number of you request this, I'm sure he will sing it for us uh, this afternoon. Uh, there is only one bad um, mark I can find on the President's uh, CV, which is that he was educated partly in the United States. But uh, we will, that was only his master's degree, and he has, in fact, uh, a PhD in agricultural economics. Uh, so we count you as a kind of economist, um, which uh, adds to the warmth of our welcome here. We are very much looking forward to what you have to say. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Your Excellency, Sir Howard Davis, Director of the LSE, Excellencies, Ministers, Members of the Parliament, Ambassadors, Distinguished Members of the Faculty, Students of this great institution of learning, ladies and gentlemen. It is a great pleasure and honor for me to be here. I thank the London School of Economics and Political Science for inviting me here today to talk about Indonesia and our worldview. The reputation of LSE, widely known as one of the world's best universities, is well known in Indonesia. I am delighted that many Indonesians have studied here and some have even come to work for me. You may take it as a good sign that LSE graduates do get jobs when they leave campus. <laughs> My Minister for Defense obtained his doctorate degree here, and so did my spokesperson, Dr. Dino Paritayal. <laughs> Both under the supervision of the late Dr. Michael Laver, one of the best experts on Southeast Asian affairs ever produced by Great Britain. I also wish to commend the LSE, which, through Ideas Center for International Affairs, Diplomacy, and Grand Strategy, has just set up the Southeast Asia International Affairs Program, headed by Dr. Munir Majid. I am glad to see here today so many young faces glowing with optimism. So let me begin by telling you a story of optimism. This is a true story reported in the mass media. During one of the sessions at the latest World Economic Forum in Davos, 
the panelists noted that all the talk about the global economy was consistently pessimistic, all gloom and doom, and no silver lining. Then one asks the questions, isn't there one optimist in this room at all? And another answered, yes, if we can find an Indonesian. <laughs> Is there an Indonesian with us here? I like this anecdote because, frankly, optimism is what has made Indonesia what we are today. The story of Indonesia has not always been an easy one, but it is a remarkable one, an epic story of survival against the odds. Just a few years ago, Indonesia made headlines around the world, including here in the BBC, the Daily Telegraph, the Guardian, for all the troubles that beset us, economic crisis, Istimor, Aceh, ethnic, ethnic conflicts, terrorism, political crisis. Back then, it seemed nothing could go right with Indonesia. Some circles predicted that after Istimor broke away from us, Indonesia would fall into balkanizations. It would settle into bits and pieces. Others thought that Indonesia would crumble under the weight of disorderly democratic transitions. And why not? Between 1998 and 2004, we had four presidents, Suharto, Habibi, Abdurrahman Wahid, and Megawati Sukarno Putri, an average of one president every 1.5 year. Thomas Friedman called Indonesia a messy state, too large to fail, too messy to work. And former U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell was perceptive enough to cite Indonesia as the most misunderstood country in the world. And I think he was right. <laughs> but that picture of disorder and uncertainty no longer represent us today. After all our trials and tribulations, Indonesia today has become a remarkably resilient country. In a world wrecked by a devastating financial, I should say a devastating financial tsunami, Indonesia last year registered 6% growth among the three highest in Asia. This year we expect a slower but still respectable 4.5% of growth. In a world that is still festering with ethnic conflict, Indonesia has become more united by resolving the conflict in Aceh and promoting political and social reforms in Papua. Today, Indonesia is the third largest democracy in the world after India and the United States. We are Southeast Asia's largest and are arguably strongest democracy. And not just a democracy by name, we are a vibrant democracy with a free press, a multi-party system, and regular elections. We are a functioning democracy that has maintained our brand of moderation and tolerance. And we have been able to achieve that rare thing among countries undergoing transitions, that is to marry democracy with stability. When my current terms end in October this year, Inshallah, my government will be the first since reformasi began to complete a full five-year term. Perhaps this is why the economists stated that Indonesia sets an example in our democratic development. Indeed, Indonesia in recent years has undergone a, a quiet revolution. By the end of this year, every governor, region, mayor, local parliament throughout Indonesia will have been directly elected by the people. This has not only dramatically changed the political landscape, it has also turned the political pyramid upside down. And all this is happening in an orderly manner without chaos and bloodshed. This month we will hold parliamentary elections and presidential elections in July. What is pertinent with this year's election is not who will win, but what it means historically for us after three elections in 1999, 2004, and 2009, 
Indonesia's democracy has achieved a point of no return. Indonesia not only accepts democracy as a fact of life, but also embraces it passionately and are willing to defend it when it is under threat. Indeed, Indonesia is now widely regarded as a living proof that democracy, Islam, and modernity can go hand-in-hand harmoniously. Our reputation for tolerance and harmony is not something that happened just now. We have been working hard at it since time immemorial in the process developing and nurturing a tradition of consultation toward consensus. Indonesian language called Musawarah untuk Mufakat. The majority does not impose its will on the minority. There is a thorough process of consultation before consensus is reached, a process in which all views are expressed and all interests are taken into account, including those of minorities. That is how we achieve harmony in an immensely pluralistic society. And because throughout our history, the cultures of three Oriental, Islamic, and Western civilizations have found a home in Indonesia, we have been given a new role. We have come to be regarded as the natural bridges, a natural bridge between the Western world on the one hand and the Islamic and Oriental worlds on the other hand. And bridges, strategic bridges, generational bridges, technological bridges, cultural bridges, economic bridges, religious bridges are what the 21st century world order will need plenty of. This is why Indonesia has been organizing and sponsoring interfaith, intercultural, and intermedia dialogues, not only among our national communities, but also among nations in the Asia-Pacific region. We have also been co-sponsoring similar dialogues on an interregional and global basis. In fact, I have vigorously pursued what I call an all-direction foreign policy, a post-Cold War 21st century foreign policy outlook where Indonesia seeks a million friends and zero enemy. That is because we know that our international engagement is the key to our success, to our security, and to our prosperity. Our economy cannot survive while the global economy collapses. We cannot have a destiny that is separate from that of our immediate neighborhood, Southeast Asia, and our region, East Asia. Indeed, it is not only Indonesia that is rapidly changing. Southeast Asia is also a very different place today. It has experienced fundamental geopolitical and geoeconomic shift. It is no longer the war-torn regions of yesteryear. Once divided by Cold War politics, Southeast Asia has become the ASEAN region. With the ASEAN Free Trade Agreement already in force, we have become the ASEAN economic community. The 10 economies of ASEAN have become a single market for goods and services and a single production space. Several decades ago, Southeast Asia was a cockpit for Cold War strategic rivalry and interstate as well as internal wars. Today, no external major powers is involved against another in a proxy war in our region, and no ASEAN members is at war against another. While internal conflicts still exist in some part, these are so low in intensity that do not affect the overall stability of the region. And today, many external powers have signed onto the ASEAN Treaty of Amity and Cooperations, contributing to our region's strategic stability, Australia, China, Japan, India, Russia, South Korea, and so on. With this treaty, signatories and acceding state renounce the use of force and bind themselves to the peaceful settlement of dispute. We hope that the United States will accede to the treaty soon, and there are signs that it just might happen. A key part of the region's transformation is ASEAN effort to become an ASEAN community by 2015. The invasion ASEAN community would rest of three pillars, the ASEAN political security community, the ASEAN economic community, 
and the ASEAN socio-cultural community. To boost the effort to build these three pillars and ultimately the ASEAN community itself, the member states formulated and adopted an ASEAN charter designed to retool and adapt ASEAN for the 21st century challenges. Last December, the charter which gave ASEAN a legal personality and greatly strengthened it entered into force. Indonesia worked hard to ensure that through the charter, ASEAN gets its politics right and to ensure that its members are committed to democracy and democratization and to the promotions and protections of human rights. In our time, we in ASEAN can no longer afford to be allergic to democracy and human rights. Thus, Indonesia pushed for a provision stipulating the creations of a regional human rights body. Hence, by virtue of the Charter, all ASEAN members are committed to the values of democracy and human rights, including Myanmar. Now Myanmar is legally bound by the Charter to make substantive progress in the implementation of, it, of its own roadmap to democracy and to attain national reconciliation. It is legally bound by the Charter to make sure that the election it will hold next year are free and democratic. I noticed that in the West, discussion on Myanmar tend to focus on the democracy aspect. This is, of course, important. But there is another aspect which do not get enough attention. Myanmar struggle to maintain its national unity and territorial integrity. We simply cannot allow Myanmar to break apart because that will lead to a bloodbath and a humanitarian disaster that would undermine regional order and stability. In my engagement with Myanmar's leaders, I have always stressed in no uncertain terms Indonesia's full spot for Myanmar's national unity. And I do believe that Indonesia's historical experience, having gone through difficult period of transition from authoritarian government to democracy, as well as ethnic conflict, is relevant to the solutions of the problems of Myanmar. We must therefore help ensure that at the end of the day, Myanmar will emerge as a democratic and united country. I also believe that any attempt to isolate Myanmar will be counterproductive. Myanmar is entering a critical phase in the run-up to election next year, the final stages of its own seven-step roadmap to democracy. The challenge here is for Myanmar to show that there is a credible and inclusive process of democratic transition at work. This is therefore the time for greater, not less, engagement, especially by Myanmar's neighbors. I know this is also what the United Nations Secretary General and his personal representative, Professor Ibrahim Gambari, are trying to do. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, while ASEAN looks after its own members, like Myanmar, it is also an outward-looking regional organization. Thus, ASEAN leads the shaping of a new architecture of the East Asia region. This can be seen from the processes of ASEAN Plus Three, which group ASEAN with China, Japan, and South Korea, and the East Asia Summit, which groups the ASEAN Plus Three countries with India, Australia, and New Zealand. In 1997, ASEAN Plus Three was established to address the Asian financial crisis. The ASEAN Plus Three process gained such momentum that in 2004, ASEAN launched the idea of an East Asia Summit. To some, the East Asia Summit should comprise the ASEAN Plus Three countries, but Indonesia pushed for a more inclusive idea of East Asia, one that embraced India, Australia, and New Zealand. Thus, ASEAN redefined the notions of East Asia so that it is no longer just a geographical, racial, or cultural entity, but an entity formed over many years of habitual and intensive consultations and cooperation between ASEAN and its dialogue partners. Like Indonesia itself with its immense diversity of ethnic culture, 
East Asia is made of countries that are widely varied, but are bound together and made one by a commonality of purpose and values. With this concept of a more inclusive East Asia, ASEAN remains at the center, not only geographically, but also in terms of occupying the driver's seat in this important process. This is important because East Asia will continue to experience in the short, medium, and long term changing dynamics of power relationship. While power relationship remains fluid, it is important that a new equilibrium be reached, ones that would, one that would provide mutual accommodation between the major powers, but in the forms of a win-win relationship that would not be at the expense of medium and smaller powers. And thus one day, when East Asia is better crafted and more firmly institutionalized, the United States, Russia, and the European Union could join the East Asia process as observers. This is not to say that East Asia will become the oriental clone of the European Union. Historically, culturally, and even economically, the EU nations are so much more similar to one another than us in East Asia. At present, we in East Asia are too diverse to place ourselves under a supra-government or to form a super-bureaucracy. But we can integrate in real, dynamic, and effective ways. For instance, ASEAN has completed or is nearly completing a process of negotiating free trade area agreements with SIG dialogue partners, which can lead to the establishment of an East Asia free trade area by 2012 or 2015 at the latest. Here we are talking about a group involving an aggregate population of 3.6 billion and of combined powerhouses in Asia. In a way, this will repeat the process within ASEAN soon after its founding in Bangkok, which makes use of economic cooperation as the driving force of its integration. Thus, the new East Asia will be consolidated first through a process of economic integration before it goes all out for political cooperation. Nevertheless, we have made an early effort at political cooperation. Last December, Indonesia organized the Bali Democracy Forum, the first intergovernmental forum in Asia about democracy. At non-governmental level, the region has had countless discussion on democracy. But this was the first time that a homegrown, homegrown Asia-wide dialogue among government officials took place about democracy. Indonesia will sustain and support the forum through an institute of peace and democracy. Friends in the international community have indicated that they will help us in this effort. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, I have presented to you Indonesia's vision of the regional architecture of East Asia. It is a regional architecture that will strive for balance, balance among the component powers of that architecture and balance between economic development and political development. I realize well enough, however, that it is not enough to have a regional vision. We must also have a global vision, most especially at a time when the whole world, without exception, is reeling from the impacts of a global economic and financial crisis. That is why Indonesia is deeply involved in the work of the G20, which is humankind's best hope for the solution, or the beginning of the solution, to the crisis that has engulfed us all. And that is why I am here in London today to attend the G20 summit after visiting this <laughs> nice institution. <laughs> the G20 was created in 1999 after the 1998 Asian financial crisis as a forum of finance ministers and central bank governors. Given the severity of the global financial crisis that broke out in the second half of last year, the G20 has been elevated to the leaders' level with the first summit in Washington last November. Today, we are having our second meeting in London, and we hope 
There will be a meeting later in the, the year in Asia. The G20 summit has become de facto the World Economy Steering Committee because it represents the major economies in the world, accounting for 80% of the GDP and 90% of world trade. Developed and developing countries and geographical regions are represented in this forum. In facing this very serious challenge of overcoming the world global recession in 60 years, the G20 summit is crucial to the building of a global confidence and global togetherness to get us out of this complex financial collapse, which has had a devastating impact on the world economy. Much has been done and achieved since the last meeting. We have all undertaken counter-cyclical measures, and the ministers of finance, central bank governors, and the Basel have worked on an agenda of reform of the financial architecture and international financial institution. However, more needs to be done. Let me share with you a few points that I will bring up at the G20 summit. First, we urge the U.S. and other developed countries to give priority to the cleaning up of the toxic asset in the financial system. Otherwise, it would be difficult to get financial flow, flows going. Second, since the Washington G20 summit, Indonesia has sent a very strong message that in resolving this crisis, we must not forget the developing and emerging countries that have limited resources to prevent the drying up of liquidity, investment, and capital on their economies. These developing and emerging countries have worked hard at building up their economies. Institutions and governance structures, they have undertaken difficult reforms and achieved remarkable progress toward development goals such as poverty reduction. They must not be punished. They must not be left to suffer unmanageable increases in poverty. There must be a global expenditure fund to serve as buffer and to provide these countries with needed financing so that their budget can sustain development goals. There has been progress on this idea, and we hope that there will be an announcement regarding the availability of this fund at this meeting. Third, there must be financial architecture reform and disciplines that will prevent another financial bubble from creating such unprecedented havoc, not only in the countries where the bubble originated, but also in the rest of the world. Fourth, the multilateral agencies, the IMF, the World Bank, and others, must rise to the challenge of this unprecedented world economic crisis. This means greater resources, flexibility in utilizing these resources, and the reform and improvement of the governance of this institution. This will entail a better system of representation at this institution to reflect the changing geoeconomics of the world. Finally, I also believe that the world economy will not recover without the recovery of the real economy. Therefore, we must ensure that there will be no increased restriction that will hamper the flows of trade, investment, capital, and even people. The surest way to prevent protectionism is to ensure that the major economies, especially the U.S. and India, return to the WTO Doha round negotiation as soon as possible. The process of recovery, the rebuilding of the financial architecture, and the reforms of multilateral institutions will take time. Over time, it is likely that the G20 summit will evolve into a regular summit and will be very focused on steering the world economy toward changes that will get us back to global stability. Indonesia will therefore continue to be deeply involved in the process of the G20 to ensure that the interests of developing nations, especially ASEAN countries, are taken into account. At the same time, I can also assure you that in the face of this crisis for Indonesia, protectionism is not our choice. There is a firm political commitment. One other message that I will try to put across is this. Man does not live by bread alone. He must also have his freedom and his ethic. 
By the same token, nations do not survive by the operation of the market alone. They must also get their governance and their politics right. That is the lesson that the United States learned in the months leading to its latest presidential election. This is a, the better lesson that Indonesia learned in the midst of the Asian crisis 11 years ago. That is the insight behind the ASEAN Charter. And that is the insight that will save us all from this global financial and economic crisis if we accept it and act accordingly. To conclude, no less than the future of humankind is at stake in the work that we in the G20 are about to do here in London. Indonesia will do its part in this great undertaking aimed at overcoming the crisis. I hope that our partners in the G20, the developed economies, as well as the emerging economies, will also do this. Thank you. President, for that very clear and comprehensive uh, view of the role of Indonesia and particularly of ASEAN. I just hesitated on one point when you said that the ASEAN countries were less similar to each other than those of the European Union. I hope you weren't meaning to imply that we and the French are the same. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that... Um, uh, we have a few minutes for, for questions, and perhaps I could have the microphone. I have one person here round on the third row, and then I've got you, you sir. You could give your name. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Director. Uh, Baba President, uh, in the second half of your uh, speech, you had uh, cleared the air about why you are in London, and so thank you very much. We were being rather misled by the Director, thinking you were well, <laughs> you know, coming to LSE. Uh, but... Uh, and you laid out uh, the six things that you will be emphasizing at the G20 summit. Could we get an idea of what you think you might get out of it? You know, uh, not all that you want, but what would you be happy to get out of it? Thank you. Yes. Um this morning, I met Prime Minister Gordon Brown, and we discussed a lot of things, how to make uh, this gathering a success. I think that at least we have to uh, convince to the people all over the world that we have uh, done enough in uh, restoring confidence, in stabilizing the financial market, in keeping the real economy moving again and in showing that we are all committed to the reforms of the global economic architecture. I also follow a statement made by my colleague G20 leaders, President Obama, President Sarkozy, Chancellor Merkel, and also, of course, Prime Minister Gordon Brown. And it seems to me that in this uh, juncture, we have to show to the world that we are all united. We are able to read a consensus here in London. Uh, we are debating uh, for weeks about which one is the best. Uh, we have to choose, for example, stimulus and regulation, or if we are talking about stimulus, a tax cut, or increased spending. But I am in line with President Obama that don't think either or, but we have to think both and end. For example, we need both uh, correct regulations and also uh, correct stimulus to be adopted in uh, every nation to recover, to conduct a counter-cyclical effort uh, in their economy. So actually, my point is that we have to uh, identify our priority, first thing first, and the most important one is to ensure the restorations of global confidence, uh, the people trust that the government, that multilateral organization, regional organization, uh, work well in mobilizing its effort 
in mobilizing uh, the resources to overcome the crisis. Uh, the main concern is, of course, credit. The main concern is also the uh, flow again of, uh, of uh, finance that are needed to, uh, to, to, to finance the counter-cyclical effort. So the bottom line is the unity of uh, all uh, members of the G20 are the key. Number two, we have to, uh, to, 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 to be able to read the global coordinated actions that is effective, that is doable, and uh, bringing, uh, again, confidence uh, to uh, uh, the people of the world. Uh, well, we have to wait until tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, but I'm optimistic that we could reach things that are needed by all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, here, Phil Craig. <clears throat> yes. uh, thank you. My name is Mohammed Tamalt. I'm, I'm a journalist. Uh, there have been uh, political sources and speculations you know, uh, saying that uh, President Obama wanted to give his first speech to the Arab world outside you know, the United States from the largest, I mean, the, the country where it's the largest number of the Muslims in the world, Indonesia. Uh, so, uh, I just want to ask you, President Yudoyono, uh, uh, as a president of the biggest uh, number of the Muslims in the world, what are, the, you know, what are your estimations and what are you expecting from, from the United States in the way of, uh, in the context of changing the foreign policy vis-à-vis -vis the Muslim world and Indonesia particularly? Thank you. Yes, uh, I had two phone conversations with President Obama. Uh, and I received the visit of uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton when she visited Indonesia last month. Uh, we discussed a lot, uh, including how the U.S. now uh, trying to use a new approach toward the world, to, toward Islamic world. It seems to me that the U.S. learned a lot from what uh, uh, she has done in the past. And uh, we welcome this kind of approach. I was asked by uh, Madame Hillary Clinton, for example, my views on how should uh, we deal with Myanmar, with Iran, with uh, countries in the Middle East. And uh, we came into conclusions that engagement communication is much better uh, than without communication at all. Because when the U.S. Uh, start engaging other countries, they may find new option, new, uh, new way in solving the problems. So uh, I come into the conclusions that uh, President Obama uh, and his administrations try to engage Islamic world uh, from different approach, and we welcome that kind of approach. Of course, uh, everything uh, will take time. Uh, even brilliant ideas, uh, there must be a time to uh, have a adjustment and anything that can uh, make uh, good ideas uh, well implemented. So the conclusion is um, I could see the win of change uh, inside the U.S. administration in dealing with Islamic world. And we welcome, uh, Indonesia welcome this kind of approach, uh, using soft power more than a hard power. Thank you. Um, a lot of people. A uh, woman there. Yeah. Thank you, moderator. Selamat sore, Pak. Mr. President, you're talking about Burma, and I think Indonesia has a very strong regional role there. But however, since 1988, when the election took place, and I think it's been more than 20 years, and you def I mean, I would like to know, how do you define Burma's leader that you've you know, been communicating? Because to me, democracy is coming with election, and Aung San Suu Kyi has been in the prison. So I think if next year there's nothing coming, I mean, do you have any alternative strategy as Indonesia as one of the key players in, in ASEAN? Thank you. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I just received the visit of the Prime Minister of Myanmar, 
I think uh, two weeks ago. And during my meeting, I uh, uh, gave a clear statement that ASEAN, including Indonesia, even the world, are waiting for the real implementations of the uh, Myanmar Roadmap to Democracy. Next year, Myanmar will conduct elections. And I uh, am saying again and again that the election must be credible. It means it should bring everybody on board, including Aung San Suu Kyi and other uh, political elements in Myanmar. The election must be transparent. The uh, election must be credible and, of course, uh, uh, must be also receiving international monitoring team. I think, uh, I don't know whether uh, what we are hoping can be well implemented in, in, in Myanmar, but it seems to me that Myanmar knows better now that uh, the world is now waiting for the promise that uh, has been given by Myanmar itself. So, um, in my estimate, uh, to a certain degree, Myanmar will uh, listen to the world opinion to uh, go ahead with uh, her roads to democracy. But, of course, uh, ASEAN uh, as a family, the United Nations, and other uh, uh, I should say elements in our global community must push Myanmar to go ahead and to uh, fulfill uh, their obligation to continue the democratization and to promote uh, human rights more. That's my estimate. Uh, don't forget, as I have said in, in my presentation, that we are only uh, talking about democracy, but in the mind of the leaders of Myanmar, they are worried about their national unity, their national integration, and others. So we have to uh, help Myanmar to go ahead with the democratization, but at the same time, we have to ensure that they are conducting uh, democratization while maintaining their national uh, unity and national integrity. That, that's my point. Thank you. A uh, man here down uh, about six rows in the front. Man with his hand up there now. Yeah, Gray, pull over. Thanks. Your Excellency, um, it was very heartwarming to hear about all the success about Indonesia, its economic, political, democratic success. Um, I you. want to thank you from all the students here at LSE for coming to speak to us over here. Uh, my question is uh, relationship of Indonesia with uh, Pakistan, seeing uh, the political, democratic breakdown we're seeing right now in Pakistan and seeing that there is no clear uh, political leadership presently there in the country and all the chaotic uh, p things we're seeing these days. What uh, do you see? Can we expect anything, any uh, relationship uh, between Indonesia and Pakistan, seeing that Pakistan is going through exactly the same trials and tribulations which Indonesia went through exactly when you were going through your presentation. So what kind of relationships uh, can we expect or can we hope to see in the future between Indonesia and Pakistan? Thank you. Yes, I would like to say that the relations between Pakistan and Indonesia are good. I met, I met personally with the, with the previous leader of Pakistan, President Musarraf, and I, I also met the, this, this current prime minister uh, in, in one occasion in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, I understand that Pakistan is facing difficult situation uh, domestically, but as a friend, as a partner, I am hoping that uh, finally Pakistan can uh, uh, solve the problems uh, uh, peacefully, uh, properly and wisely. Uh, it is the hope of a friend of Pakistan. And, uh, of course, as a friend, as a partner, uh, we are more than willing to share ideas on how to tackle um, internal uh, security problems uh, because Indonesia has experience in the past facing uh, similar difficulties. 
in uh, maintaining our national unity, uh, the harmony among elites, while uh, dealing with internal problems, security problems, and others. So the key is the unity among leaders, among elite, in one country like Indonesia uh, had in the past uh, before uh, adopting a correct strategy and policy in solving various problems domestically. So this is my hope as a friend, and I do believe, inshallah, some, someday the problem will be solved uh, by the unity and the wisdom of all leaders in Pakistan. Thank you. Man, the gray seats. Thank you, Mr. President, for the far-reaching uh, talk. I'm Nabil Ayat from the University of Westminster. As the largest Muslim country, Indonesia, what, is the, pos- what is the position of Indonesia towards recognition the only Muslim country in Europe, Kosovo? Thank you. Yes. Uh, in this connection, I have uh, talked to Secretary General of the UN, Mr. Ban Ki-moon. I did uh, uh, talk also to former uh, Finnish President Marty Atisari when he came to me to ask my view about the status of Kosovo. Two things, sir. One, Indonesia support the sovereignty of a nations. Uh, based on the international law. Uh, this is my, my first thesis in looking at the problem in Kosovo. Second thing, we realize that the process of uh, nation building and state building uh, after the collapse of Yugoslavia is not over yet. In these connections, I, Indonesia is open, is flexible to see whether it's the choice of uh, the people of Kosovo to be an independent nation. So uh, right now we are uh, are thinking that uh, it is quite possible for Indonesia to accept, to recognize the uh, independent status of uh, Kosovo uh, uh, after we examine carefully that there is a, a different situation in Myanmar after the process of balkanization to have an independent state of Kosovo. So this is our, these are our two theses, and I did say to uh, Secretary General of uh, the United Nations on those perspectives, and we are still following the development of the situation in Kosovo now, and as I tell you, that uh, it's quite possible to someday Indonesia recognize the, uh, the independence of Kosovo. Thank you. I think we'll take uh, one more, and I'll take the grey shirt there. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a one. Thank you, Mr. President, for a very interesting and, and wide-ranging speech. Um, there was one element, uh, perhaps, of the crises that are facing the planet at the moment that you didn't touch on, and that is the question of climate change. And I was just wondering if you could give us your thoughts on perhaps Indonesia's current levels of emissions, certainly uh, in the context of your agricultural ministry and the opening up of peatlands and rainforests that has been happening even as recently as February, and whether or not uh, you had plans to induce a moratorium, whether or not you thought such a concept would be useful and workable in your country. Yes, um, Indonesia is fully committed to the reductions of carbon dioxide globally, regionally, and nationally. We successfully hosted the UN Conference on Climate Change in Bali that uh, produced a Bali roadmap that is to be followed by the next Copenhagen Conference to trap a new protocol after the Kyoto Protocol. Domestically, we are uh, uh, doing uh, serious things to overcome the uh, climate issues. I'll give you one example. Realizing that forest fires are the source of the uh, scaling up of the uh, carbon dioxide in the, in the last three years, we have done a lot to prevent that things to happen. And it was working well up to the present time. We are able to reduce 
the, uh, 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 the emissions of our uh, CO2 uh, from the forest. Second thing, uh, we are working together with other nations, with the UK, with uh, Australia, with South Korea on forest uh, management. It means that we are very serious in controlling our forests not to be uh, uh, illegally exploited. And of course, we need time to complete our overall management of our forests. Uh, other things, uh, I believe very strongly that since we agree to uh, apply the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective uh, capabilities, it means developing countries like Indonesia are more than willing to do more in curbing the global warming. The problem is different with other developed nations. Sometimes we have limitations in our resources, in our finance. That's why a fair and comprehensive partnership between the developed and developing nations are the key based on the, um, say, uh, transfer of technology, the adaptation, the mitigation, and also the uh, financing. So, the, so my conclusion is that Indonesia is continuously doing what we have to do in saving our own uh, uh, country, uh, being part of the global community to cope the global warming. And this, uh, and I would say that the partnership is the key uh, to succeed with our overall uh, efforts. <clears throat> Thank you. We promised the President faithfully that we would get him into, back into his Jaguar. Um, uh, nice that you drive an Indian car. Um, uh, by um, by 4.30, and that's where we are. Uh, we're enormously grateful to you once again for coming, and particularly for answering a wide range of questions in a very open way. I would, before I ask you to thank the President traditionally, could you just ask you... Um, when you've done so, just stay seated for a moment while the President and his party uh, go out up this way. But thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.